Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros, and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Now, back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line. And I've been, you know, I've been warned when I make his mic go live that I need to stand back and hold on for dear life. And that is my good friend here, Rob Strano. Let me remind you about Rob's background. He is from St. Louis, Missouri. Grew up playing at the same country club as PGA Tour players like Bob Golby, Jay and Jerry Haas, and Frank Connor. Played his college golf at Centenary College, which has a couple other famous golfers. One is, you know, Hal Sutton. The other famous athlete that uh, went to Centenary, of course, is one of my favorite Celtics of all time, Robert Parrish. Rob played on the PGA Tour, the Nationwide Tour, and the Hooters NGA Tour for 15 years. He won five times out there, the last of which coming at the 1999 Energizer Invitational. He's now one of the top instructors in the game and was named an honorable mention for the top 50 youth golf instructors by U.S. Kids Golf. He is the only top instructor teaching the game children. He's also probably, you've probably also seen Rob on the Golf Channel on Golf Academy Live. He's got a lot of great instructional videos available there. His Strano Golf Academy is located at Kelly Plantation in Destin, Florida, which, like I said a moment ago, was, which is where I'm going to get to go see Rob sometime next week. And I'm honored he is back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rob, how are you, my friend? Chris, it's great to be on. I'm so excited to be back with you. We have such a fantastic time when we get on the show. And, and, and hey, hey, hang on a second here. I, I sit in my kitchen table and I had a golf ball sitting here and it, I thought it was going to stay, but it's starting to roll away. Hang, hang on, hang on, I gotta go. Okay. Okay, I, I got it. Hang on, I'm coming back. Whew, that was close. That ball was, I thought it was staying, but it started to roll off the table and if I had to stop it, it was going to get to the floor and start bouncing and it was going to go out the door and it could have gone down the street so whew. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was going to stay for a second. It was, it was right there on the table. And it was gaining speed, and I had to run around to the other end. And luckily, I was quick enough to get there before it, you know, got off the edge of the table. And whew, that was, that I'm was sure really close. So, so what's I'm sure Phil Mickelson could name that tune in three notes. <laughs> <laughs> Is so. there anything going on in the golf world we're going to talk about? <laughs> yeah, right. It's a shame. It's just such a dull week. Nothing happening going on around the game of golf. Holy smokes. Rob, I, you know, so we got to kick it off right there, right? G- give us your assessment for what you saw both, you know, from the tournament itself and then from the golf course at Shinnecock Hills and what the USGA did to it. Well, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about this and we, we go to these great golf courses and, and the thing about like, like Shinnecock, for example, is the greens are small and slopey. And when you set the greens and mow them and prepare them like Augusta, and, and I've seen the slope values, I've seen the putting slope books, there's tons of eights and sevens on these greens. And when you make the greens roll at 12 and 13, the ball just won't stay on the slopes. And you, you can't prepare these courses that way. And that tournament would have been great with greens rolling about 10 or barely 11, like they did. Remember when Mickelson and Stenson had that great duel at the British Open, right. and the greens were so slow that year. But it was a great event. If they would have kept the greens at a reasonable speed, it would have been a fabulous, a fabulous U.S. Open. But, you know, interesting thoughts about the U.S. Champions. And quiz question for everybody. How many championships does the USGA run a year, Chris? How many do you think they run total in a year? 
Wow. When you th- when you think about the U.S. Amateur, the Mid-Ams, and I, I would say they probably run uh, a dozen tournaments a year. Sixteen. How many of our professional mm-hmm. events? Four. Four. The two senior opens, the men and women's open. Four. They're an amateur golf organization, and they always have been. They aren't a professional organization. They're an amateur organization run by amateurs that happen to host four professional events. Therein lies the problem. If you go look up the board of the USGA, you'll find very few true golf people in there. I always laugh when you'll see in the media reported or the golf writers write about Nicholas was talking to so-and-so at the USGA. And and here's the great one of the greatest golfers of all time, and he talks to them and tells them, hey, you know, y'all think about this, or this would be a good idea. And they, they kind of pat him on the head like the little four-year-old kid that doesn't know anything and go, aren't you cute? Aren't you sweet? You're just precious. And they squeeze him on the cheek and go, just, you just keep talking. You're so adorable. The guy's, <laughs> the guy's probably one of the smartest golf people on the freaking planet. How about you listen to him, you bunch of dumb amateurs running the USGA? And what, what, this is a really amazing little, little minor thing about the USGA. That just goes to the whole US Open. Caddy bibs. The Masters bibs are the Masters bibs. PGA, PGA Championship on the bib. Open Championships says 100 and whatever, Open Championship on it. You know what the Caddy bibs for the US Open say on them? USGA. That says a lot wow. right there. Yeah. You ever notice, you ever notice that? It's USGA. No. Doesn't say, it doesn't say the US, the US Open with the Shinnecock logo on it, or next year the Pebble Beach logo. It says USGA. Hmm. Interesting thing to chew on. So, 12 In, out of indeed. Events, 12 out of 16 events are amateur events, and the caddy bits say USGA on them. That's a big thing, but wait a second. This is the US Open, it's our national championship. Why wouldn't you have the national championship insignia on there for the tournament? Now, course set up aside, um, you know, they keep screwing up the national championship. And it's frustrating. And they had it right for a long time. The U.S. Open is always been hit in the fairway, get it off the fairway, gouge it out. They went to that graduated rough stuff that first time. The players went, hey, this is great. Then they started to go all the way around with it, and the character of the event changed. And it became basically the PGA Championship. They need to go back to one cut or up. That's it. I don't care if you're a step off the fairway. Hit in the fairway. But one cut of rough, that's our U.S. Open. That's the U.S. Open. Second thing, stop playing the U.S. Open on British Open golf courses. Aaron <laughs> Hills, are you kidding me? Aaron Hills was awful. It was awful. Shinnecock, yeah, it's it's a really great course. But you know what? U.S. Open rotation should be very much like the British Open rotation. It's Wingfoot. It's Baltus Roll. It's Oakmont. It's Marion, it's Pebble, it's Medina. It is the best of the American golf course. America, USA, this, this is our tournament. Stop taking it to a British Open-style golf course. We aren't a Lynx-style country, golf course country. We're an American golf course country. Yeah, we got some great Lynx courses. You know, Chambers Bay, are you kidding me? Huh. You know, another disaster of a U.S. Open choice. Let's stick with American golf courses. Set them up like American golf courses and have our national championship. So, Rob, 
Looking at, and as you mentioned, some of the more recent debacles that have, that have happened with respect to the U.S. Open and course layout and setup. Is this an is this an embarrassment for the USGA? Is it something that the you know the Mike Davises and his team are going to have to be held accountable for, or do you think this just you know goes away and we all hope and pray that they don't do the same thing to us next year out of Pebble? Question: Who holds them accountable? I've said for years within the USGA there ought to be a board of directors, like the PGA has the policy board. There ought to be a board of the USGA of golf people golf people that oversees the USGA people. They're the ones that that oversee it. It ought to be it ought to be Nicholas ought to be on it. Absolutely. You ought to have people that love golf. Michael Breed, myself, people that are all about the game of golf, that are passionate about the game of golf, and don't want the national championship to become a, a laughing stock and a joke. There's nobody to hold my Mike Davis accountable. There's nobody to hold him accountable. Zero. So there, there's gonna be no change there. In, in that at all, they're going to they're going to keep going on and keep saying we'll figure it out, we'll get it right. They don't. And you know, you look at you know the Dustin Johnson situation in Oakland, that was so miserably handled. Then it was you know followed by the Un Nordquist um, U.S. Women's Open debacle right after that. I mean, there should have been no screw up there. And then you got the the course screw ups. And you know we're going to go to Torrey Pines again in a couple of years. Torrey Pines is not a U.S. Open golf course. Are you kidding me? No, never, ever. But we're going to go out and watch the guys wander around a boring Torrey Pine golf course for the U.S. Open. And, you know, and we're stuck with it. They've already made the choice. So, you know, it's it's a frustrating situation for someone like me that's grown up in the game, historically loves the game. And I'll tell you a year or two story that will make you just pull your hair out. Back when I played full-time, I played the, the, the U.S. Open qualifying up in Philadelphia. And in that section, and 36 holes one day, and I had an eagle putt went 15 feet on the last hole to, to make it out right, and I burned the edge, burned the last hole to get the playoff. And it's late in the day, you know, the officials have been out there all day, and the official in charge looks at me and the other two guys and goes, well, you guys must have a scorecard playoff? And I looked at him and I went, what? A scorecard playoff? This is the U.S. Open. This is the first alternate spot into the, the next stage of the U.S. Open. Um, I said, no, what's, what's, the, what's the, the policy for the day say? What are our rules for the day say? It says all ties are settled by a playoff. And he looked at me and he goes, so you want to play it off? I said, what does is, what is the rule sheet say? He says, well, I guess the traditionalist wants to play it off. Wow. And I looked at him and I went, I just was like, are you kidding me? So we played the first playoff hole. And one guy gets eliminated, and I'm standing on the second tee with the official, and he's got his walkie-talkie on a little too loud. And the same guy radios out to him and goes, what happened on the first hole? Did the traditionalist get eliminated, hopefully? And I wow. looked at him, and he looked at me, and he radioed back, and he goes, no, we're on the second hole. And he lowered the volume, and he goes, just between you and me, you're right, he's wrong. I agree with you. And I won the next playoff hole. I mean, wow. there's your USGA right there. There's... There's a great example of the U.S. United States Golf Association. We're going we're gonna to do a, a scorecard playoff when our rules say we, we play this thing off. I mean, it's, I dealt with the frustration with the U.S. today from that standpoint, but, you know, the, the U.S. Open, um, and the organization itself, um, it's, 
you don't have any golf people running the organization. And that's the, that's the problem. Rob, you, you mentioned the Open Championship a moment ago. And you, when you look back over the history of the Open Championship, certainly the more recent history, sometimes we see winners there, double digits under par, like we saw with Jordan, you know, Jordan Speed last year at minus 12, Stenson a couple of years ago in that, in that wonderful round that he and Phil played, you mentioned, it was 20 under par to win it. And, and, but other years, like when Phil won in 2013, it's minus three and Darren Clark in 2011, minus five, right? So it's, it's, I think the weather dictates kind of what the winning score is going to be. If, if it's, if it's cold and damp and rainy and windy, you're going to see, you know, scores right around par just a little over. But if it's benign, the courses are gettable and we see the minus 20s and the minus 12s. And it just sort of seems like the, the RNA just lets the tournament be the tournament. And however it plays out, it plays out. The USGA seems like they start with the goal has got to be even par. And then if things don't, you know, come as planned, like we saw with the weather and the, and the wind and the course drying out and that sort of thing, now all of a sudden you've got a disaster. It just seems like they're coming at it from the wrong standpoint. Just let the course be the course. And whatever the weather happens and however it plays out, it doesn't matter if the if the winning score is minus 15 or the winning score is par. But they seem to be coming at it from the opposite direction. That's where I think they've got it wrong. I I agree completely, Chris. And you know, let's just take Wingsfoot for example. A traditional old course, very very difficult. Uh, um, you know, they can set it up super difficult, small slopey greens again. But what happens if they go to, when they go to Wingsfoot next? And they set it up U.S. Open top, and someone just has a great week, and they shoot 10 under par to win by, like Tiger did at Pebble, where, where someone just has an on week, and they light it up. Are, are they going to mug him in the parking lot? You know what? These guys are really good players. Set the course up, like you said, like it is, and let's just let the guys play. It's okay if the guy plays well. You know, but let's stick with our U.S. Open courses, set them up like U.S. Open courses, and if things don't go as planned with the weather being the the, the firm conditions you hope for, but yet the course is playable, and say the course gets wet and you've got to play lift clean in place and the, and the green kicks off and we're, th- we're throwing darts as players, well, darn, we're really good and we're going to be able to put some scores up. Oh, well, we'll... We're not curing cancer here. We're playing golf. Let's just let it be. Let it be what it is. Right. Switching gears just slightly, Rob, and the, you know the, the the as you mentioned right at the top, right? Penalty on Phil Phil Mickelson, and I guess by the letter of the law, the two-stroke penalty, you know, is what's in in the rule book. But should he have been disqualified for the spectacle he made of the situation, and considering his stature? Within the game, or do you think it was calculated by Phil, and he was trying to make a statement to the USGA? Um, great, great question. Okay, tackle the first one about the DQ. Absolutely not, because Daly was not DQ'd at Pinehurst. So, if if Daly's going to hit a moving ball out of frustration, and Phil's going to hit a moving ball out of frustration, you got to apply it applicably. If you decide to DQ him, you're, you you've just totally really done something even more stupid. Um. The Mickelson thing. Anybody that's put their name on a scorecard at a big time event inside the ropes has at some point or another had enough. You, you've reached the point of totally mentally losing it. You've gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's Phil. 
He went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He'd had enough. He had, he had driven the ball beautifully. He couldn't figure out how to get the ball in the hole from the, from the fairway for three days and had reached the point of I've all of a sudden just completely, the springs have sprung, the dam is broken, and at that moment he just lost it and just chased it down and batted it back. Now, with that said, he's not fooling anybody that plays the game legitimately by what he said. We all know he just lost it for a moment and couldn't, had no clarity as to what to do other than what he did. If he would have just gone in front of the media and gone, look, guys, I just lost my brains. I just flat snapped. It was, I just, I couldn't stop myself. There's nothing I could do. My brain was yelling, don't, 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 and my body did. I'm sorry. I apologize. I played golf competitively since I was, since I could walk. Just, it was that kind of a week for me. From the middle of the fairway, I couldn't figure out how to get it close to where these flags are. They're, they're hanging off the edge of cliffs, and my putting touch was bad. Just, just wasn't my best moment. Sorry to everybody. If you would have just said that, we would have all gone, boy, been there wanted to do that. Just like yeah. Gilmore bending down, bending down at the golf ball going, why won't you go home? Go to your home. <laughs> We've all wanted to do that. We've all wanted to do that. You know? I don't know if anybody's the one yep. to punch Bob Barker or anybody else that's a celebrity in a prime with us, but, you know, we've all wanted to bend over and, and yell at the golf ball to go home. And Phil, just for one moment in time there, just, like I said, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Rob, a couple more before I let you go. So, emerging from all the rubble, right, is Brooks Kepka, now the winner of back-to-back U.S. Opens. He leaps from number nine in the world golf rankings up to number four. And I don't think I've seen a guy with as quick an overall swing on his backswing to his, you know, to how fast he swings, you know, in the downswing like his since you know, maybe Tom Watson. I'm curious to get your assessment of Brook, uh, Brooks Kepka's swing and his overall game. Tell you what, his, his swing is very technically sound for a guy that's big and strong. He's kind of like Stenson. He kind of, he, he kind of looks like he's swinging a wooden doll. It's just, you know, or, or alignment sticks. It's just, the club just looks like it's very, very weightless in his hand. And, and as he moves, it's just, he sets that club in a great strong position. And then from there, as the club orbits him coming down, he slots it and just slams it into the back of the ball. When you're big and strong like that, and you can deliver the club that squarely with the path that cleanly and the face under control, boy, you can hit the middle of the club face a lot and hit a lot of great quality shots and really launch that ball up in the air. So, you know, the, the future for this kid is, is phenomenal. And, and I actually predicted him winning last year's U.S. Open. I called that on social media. I said, Kepka's my guy. And it turned out he won and didn't have the courage of my convictions this year to, to go with him back to back just because he had been hurt. But, um, he sure, you know, put it together and looks like he's got a game that's got lots of, lots and lots of longevity. Um, as long as he can stay healthy. And the good thing is his swing to me doesn't look like it's ever going to hurt him. He's got power, but it doesn't look like he's ever doing anything to break his body. Not unlike Tiger, who had power with effort, and it always looked like he was going to hurt himself at some point. I don't see that out of any of Kepka's moves or positions he gets in. He always looks like he's in a very stable physical position no matter where it is. 
Rob, I got to get a, a playing lesson from you before I let you go. And um, you've got a wonderful video along with Michael Breed that people can see on your website, stranogolf.com, about how we can improve our putting by using a wedge. Talk about that drill. Well, the great thing about that drill is it, it does several things. Number one, in order to, to belly a wedge or blade a wedge and putt it, the wedge can't be going down, otherwise you'll chip it. When you putt, you want about four degrees of rise out of the putter. So when the putter is rising with about four degrees of, of rise and three degrees of loft, it's not bouncing because you're hitting down on it. In order to hit the ball with rise with the wedge, the ball position also has to be forward. You can't have it in the middle of your body. It's got to be forward kind of towards the logo on your left side of your shirt or the middle of the left pet. If you have it there and the putter is rising, you'll hit it right in the middle of the ball, which is a very precise spot to hit it. The ball will turn over and roll right away. And then because you're hitting with the leading edge of the wedge, it's got to be pointing straight ahead too. So you've got to keep the face calm. You can't flip it around or wiggle it with your hands because then you'll miss wildly left or, you know, if you shove it, you'll miss wildly right. So it teaches you face control because the edge of the, put the wedge has to be, be under control. It teaches you good ball position and good delivery rise into the back of the ball to get it, turn, get it to turn over and roll. You cut, you put those together and you become a good putter. You know, on a tour, if you see a guy putting with his wedge, you usually don't walk up to him and go, hey, you want to putt for a hundred bucks because he's probably <laughs> going to beat you bad. Rob, remind our listeners how they can follow you both online and over social media as well. Well, online, I always say I'm the easiest person to find on the planet. Online, stranogolf.com. You can find out everything about the academy there. Watch a bunch of golf channel videos and see some other stuff there for players and information about how to schedule a training session for me here down here at the beach in Destin, Florida. Great spot. Come down and bring your family. Come hang out with me. We'll improve your game. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just Rob Strano on Facebook. You can also go to Strano Golf Academy and find stuff. Over on YouTube, visit Strano Golf Academy there. And you'll see a bunch of fun videos, whether they're recruiting videos, instruction videos, or some other cool stuff I've done and posted on YouTube. So lots of good content out there. And uh, feel free to reach out to me via email, stranogolf.gmail.com. Give me a call at the Academy. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And, Chris, thanks again for having me. It's always a ball to be out with you. Hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you down here at the beach next week. Yeah, God knows. I can't wait to get down there and check it out. So. Thank you so much, Rob, for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're right. It's always a great time when I get to spend some time with you. You're fantastic, my friend. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks again for having me. And by the way, that ball is still sitting here. It's, I'm going to mark it now because it's stayed on the table. <laughs> I'm going to mark it, lift it, clean it, and put it back in place. It's still on the table. <laughs> That's awesome. Take care, Rob. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. See you. Yeah, that's a great Rob Strano, S-T-R-A-N-O, stranogolf.com. He's got a lot of great uh, playing lessons, tips. Like you said, go out on YouTube, check him out there. A lot of great videos, and uh, the one with uh, with Michael Breed and that putting stroke with the with the wedge is fantastic. That I'll be practicing that between now and this weekend. So anyway, look forward to getting getting uh, back uh, together with Rob again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Randy Pice, I want to give a uh, shout-out to a couple of our sponsors. First, folks, you hear, you've been hearing me talk almost for the last year about Clubhub Sensors, and it's the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there because other shot trackers tell you what happened. Clubhub's going to tell you what happened and why. 
Take the progress that you make over on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. I have club-up sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips. And I can tell you, since I put the club-up sensors on my clubs, I've learned more about my swing and all of the data surrounding it than I've learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Because not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and the greens, but after your round, you can look back at the images and the layout of every hole in the course that you just played and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. No other GPS tool on the market captures that and lets you go back and review your round the way the Club Hub app does. It's available for Androids or iPhones, and the app keeps track of your swing speed of every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And again, no other rangefinder can do all that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com to order your set of Club Hub sensors today and enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhub app, clubhubgolf.com and enter the coupon code NEXT and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price, and you're going to see your game in a whole new way. And, folks, i got to tell you how excited I am about a new weapon I have in my golf bag. And for the last couple of months, I've been playing the new M4 driver from TaylorMade Golf, and if you haven't tried their new twist face technology, you're missing out. I don't know about you, but I don't hit it in the center of the face every single time. And after studying hundreds of thousands of swings from pros and amateurs like us, TaylorMade designed their new drivers to help protect our miss hits and give us straighter distance. So whether your miss is on the low heel or the high toe, TwistFace helps bring the ball back to center, keeping the distance that we want and finding the fairway more often. I'm hitting more fairways than I ever have, and the new drivers are also the choice of some pretty good golfers you might recognize, right? TwistFace is played by Tiger Woods. Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, John Rahm, and Justin Rose, to name just a few, and it's dominating the top 10 out on tour. So if you haven't tried Twistface, go hit it and get fit. It's in the new M3 and M4 drivers, only from TaylorMade. 